Um, so it is true, working on a daily program, as many of you will know, is quite a beast. It's three hours of blank. Every day you start your day with a canvas that there's nothing in it because it's driven by news and it's driven by oftentimes the agenda of the day and you're looking at current affairs in uh, somewhat of uh, a traditional way because you've got to convey very basic information to your listeners. So never mind trying to get the stories and never mind trying to get them right. What about trying to do something completely different with them when you do have to file uh, either a few hours later or into the next day? And one of the things that we wanted to start with, a basic premise for our talk here today, was what we often face on a daily basis, which is this plea of, I have no time to be creative. There's no time to do, I just have to file, I've got to get the story written. There's no time to be creative. And that's one of the things that we want to start with by challenging that as a boundary. So we're calling that kind of an alleged boundary of uh, doing news and current affairs on a daily basis. Um, as long as you have a few minutes, and again, this is sort of our operating principle uh, over the course of the next hour, as long as you have a few minutes at the beginning, at the beginning of this process when you either get that news release or you get that assignment or you understand that you've got to go out and you've got to do a certain story you've either been asked by your editors to do or you're pitching a certain story, as long as you have a few minutes within your brain our belief is, I think Steve will concur, that that's all it takes to give you a set of options that maybe you never knew you had before uh, to create something that will be far more memorable than perhaps your traditional so-and-so is the blah-blah-blah of blah-blah-blah. He says, clip. Um, for us, it always goes back no matter what you want to try to do with it. You want to make a funky, you want to create something funky out of it. You want to play and experiment with format and treatment. For us, it always goes back to the beginning, and for us, the beginning is knowing and understanding what the story is. And I think that's your cue. Is that a throw to me? That's a throw. Oh, that's a challenging throw, because um, this, is the, um, this is the panel that deals with the soggy middle. Uh, you right. guys have had the front and the back end already, <laughs> and um, we're here to tell you that the middle is also uh, can be pretty good. Um, and the middle, of course, is the heart of the story. Um, we haven't got time to go through all the weird stuff that we do, um, storyboarding and, and trying to um, uh, work through various techniques of story development uh, quickly on the hoof as we approach a lot of stories. So I am going to restrict what I'm going to say to a couple of simple things. It's the scene, stupid. It's the scene. Um, that is sort of a mantra for me and has been, and I hate to say this, and the previous panel was examining I think the, the, their own career paths and wondering whether they actually learned anything over the 30 years because, you know, uh, one of the pieces that they played at the beginning sounds rather like a piece that, that they've succeeded with all those years and years and years and now they're doing anything different. Uh, well, you know, whatever. For me, it's the scene and that, and as I play you a clip or two from very early work, that sort of thought haunts me because uh, what I'm going to play you is, 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 an, is an approach to getting stuff quickly um, which, where you go out as a scene hunter, um, approaching the material that you've, the story, the life out there, that big amorphous mess of life that you're supposed to come back and craft something into a story with quickly. And um, it has to sound like uh, scenes put together. It has to sound like something, a story. So um, just quickly to switch the metaphor here, because the previous panel talked a little bit about journey, just touched on that. 
I mentioned in passing, story as journey. I just want to quickly uh, mention one quick, um, the Wadhams five-point checklist, which you might want to know about, which has worked for me through thick and thin, through any story, any time, any length, any deadline, two-minute piece, two-hour piece, who cares? Can you answer the questions? One, um, did you go anywhere? Mentally, physically, did you, did you take the listener on a trip anywhere? Did you, as a listener, I'm speaking, did you go anywhere on this thing? Two, did you meet anybody interesting? Um, we all know the tyranny of the cardboard cutout clip where some really interesting person was reduced to 20, 28 seconds and they sounded like just a very pale representative for an idea. Did you meet somebody interesting? Any nuance, any human beings in your story that I can relate to? Three, did you learn anything? Was there any insight in this story, in this journey that you're taking the listener on? Four, did you feel anything? Did you get below the neck? You know, did you get down here? Um, and lastly, on any journey, um, I think you want surprises, preferably good ones. Um, so there's my checklist, uh, which works, uh, I think, for every story all the time. Back to scenes. Story. Um, there's no such word as information telling, at least I'm not aware of it. There is a word called storytelling. And so for me, the, the, the triptych is story, scenes, images. And in my head, when I'm going out on stories, this is what I'm thinking. What is my story? Where are the scenes? And where are the pictures? Where are the images? We all know the cliche, right? It's the biggest cliche in radio. Um, it's, uh, the secret of radio is, is, uh, is pictures. The secret of television, by the way, is sound, um, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> we won't talk about it later. Uh, anyway, I'm going to play a bit of tape in a moment, and it comes from very, um, very early on in the stuff that I was doing. You may notice from the bio that I've lived a little bit of time and spent a lot of time in Africa, which would explain some of the African stuff that you might hear in a moment. Just one quick um, anecdote about a failed mission because, you know, it's quite revealing to learn from failures. First, one of the first little assignments when I was starting out way back, um, go, out and go out and do a little feature interview type thing, which is BBC days now, way back in the early 70s, uh, on a keyboard player. You know, it's embarrassing to say this now, but here's what I did. I go out, I go to his place, um, I, I do an interview with this guy, I come back to the office, I listen to the interview, and beads of sweat start breaking out on my forehead. Why? Because I haven't taken him anywhere. This is just an interview, right? He's talking about his music. He's talking about being a keyboard player. It's boring. Um, so I remember thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I didn't know the answer to that, actually, at the beginning. So eventually it dawned on me about half an hour later, I've got to go back. And why do I have to go back? I've got to get him doing something. I actually have to hear the music. He's a keyboard player, you, you idiot. Go and get some music. <laughs> Make a scene. Turn an interview into a scene. That's the key to the whole thing. Okay. Um, right now I'm going to play a piece of tape that uh, runs a couple of minutes or more. Um, it was made, a very, it's a very rough uh, uh, piece of tape, there's lots of errors and mistakes and microphone bumps and things like that, but I think it gets the point home. Uh, we're in uh, the 70s in Africa, we're in Rhodesia as it was called before Zimbabwe came along. Um, we are in the middle of a civil war there. Actually it's sounding rather like what we have at the moment in uh, Zimbabwe with the situation of the, of the, uh, the farmers, the commercial white farmers. 
Um, my marching orders are to get a, some, get, go and get um, something about the life well, of one of, the, of these farmers. You go there. I went there um, to this place, to these farmers in the middle of the bush. There was a, there was a war going on, a guerrilla war going on, and uh, they are nervous. They uh, don't know who the hell this guy from Canada is. The uh, Ministry of Information Minder is with me, of course, wondering, you know, watching what these people are saying. Um, the first thing that happens is the coffee table interview. I think we've all experienced the coffee table interview, where the, the trap is aboutness, uh, talking about something without actually showing something. So again, the beads of sweat break out on my forehead, and I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to do? This is going absolutely nowhere. I've, taken, I've gone to all the way to Africa at the public expense. We work for a public corporation, by the way, and that's very nice. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I am not taking my listeners anywhere. They, this, this is, this is, I'm not transporting them to give them an insight or a snapshot of the life of these people. What do you do? Obvious. Get them out of the, the house. So what you'll hear now is uh, what happened uh, uh, when, when, that, when that was done. So the coffee table interview, forget it. You do it, a courtesy interview maybe, and then you say, let's get out. Can we see something? Can we do something? Can we make some action? Can I create, can I create a scene? And I think it's Mr. and Mrs. Bennett you're going to meet now. Clay.
How do you make out with the, the servants? Do you ever find a lack of trust as a result of the terrorism? Uh, well, put it this way, you do learn not to take things too much for granted. You have to be aware of any strange behavior. But on the whole, things go on as normal as usual. Nobody has been betrayed or otherwise put into trouble by the servants? On our farm, no. You're in the middle of an operational area. You've got a protected village right next to you. You've got landmine and possibilities all over the place, barbed wire, guns and dogs, and everything goes on as normal. Well, it does, you see. <laughs> Life is, as it always has been, with a few exceptions, of course. I mean, we, we carry a gun around. We have guns you, out at night. You also could yes. use a gun? Oh, yes. You both are Rhodesian born and bred. You're both we are. very, very committed. We are. Nationalist in your own way. Yes. Yeah. If an African government came in, I mean, you might be expropriated, somebody might take you over. What are you going to do? Fight. So that's just an interview turned into a scene, sort of, right? There's movement, um, things are happening. Um, just quickly, I can review some of the things that we heard, which you wouldn't ever have heard or known about if the interview had just been around the coffee table. But first, to pick up Priya's point, actually, it takes no more time to do that than it does to do the coffee table interview, to edit it. That's just edited down from a 15-minute walkabout. So the time question, you know, is neither here nor there in that sense. Um, it's, what, it's what's in your head going out to try to capture that scene that, that, that you need. Like, you know, when you walk into the situation, what am I going to do? How can I turn this into something that will really uh, show me something, show the listener something? What did we get? Well, you know, I mean, the first thing the Bennetts do when they left the house, this is 1976, by the way, this stuff, this interview. Um, and uh, they strap guns on first. They leave them by the door. So that's something that happens, uh, not at the coffee table. Um, there's a sense of movement, I think you'll, you'll agree. You feel there's a certain sense of movement walking around. You can hear some of the sort of long grass. Um, there's exotic bird sounds. There's a dog bark, which, for example, to, to my ear suggests uh, danger, the dog, the bird, uh, exotic place. Um, there's uh, an incident with, um, and I chose to use the word servant, because that's their language, and it, could, it was an option I could have used, uh, I could have used the other side's language. Um, but then uh, you have to make, you have to decide which type of language you're going to use when you're speaking to these people if you want their cooperation, etc. So the servant walks by, this guy in a white coat. Now he's just spoken, Mr. Bennett, about uh, how farmers like him and his wife get killed. It's people who cut holes in fences. That's how they get killed. How do those holes get there? People who, you know, it could be done by guerrillas coming from outside or it could be done from the inside. So the question of the servant, quote-unquote, is, is relevant. Some, uh, and, and, and you can feel uh, the pause while we, uh, start, we wait for this guy to get out of earshot before mentioning this. Uh, the, the, the next thing is the sound. You can actually hear the front line, really, because in a guerrilla war there is no conventional front line. The front line is the fence. And it sounds, I don't know about you, but it sounds pretty flimsy to me. But that is the front line for him. So you hear that. Um, so all these things happened. Lots of mistakes. The microphone was, was weird. Lots of handling noise. Um, there was an, a weird acoustic at the end because I had cut two scenes together. They weren't acoustically different enough to, to make it. This is an early piece. Um, that was a minor error. What the heck? Um, I think we sort of captured something anyway of their life like that, sort of hanging around with these people, getting out. A day in the bush. I have a little mantra which actually I started right there in Africa. A day in the bush is worth a week in the city. 
um, and it applies to wherever you are. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying. A day in the bush is worth. It. You get much better tape uh, in the bush than in the city. Um, and I mean that in parentheses, you know, in inverted commas. Um, I better move on quickly. My second piece of tape, and this is where I begin to realize I'm doing the same thing. You know, 2001, 1976, hanging around trying to get pictures out of people. I'm trying to uh, use the props that are available to me. This time, this is a story now from uh, September 11th, and the assignment was to um, go and meet an Afghani family in Toronto who, you know, had connections, family connections to the events in Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan, um, and. You know, I don't know if, have you ever been in a situation you walk into a family and they're expecting you? In my case, there were seven people in the room, um, in this pristine room uh, uh, where they were living in Toronto, and two babies. And somehow I look at this, I take in this, the situation, think, where, what am I going to do? Where are, there's seven people waiting here. This, this, the trap here is I'm just going to get another about interview. I'm just going to wave a microphone around, they're going to talk about things. But um, being a crafty, old soul. I had um, brought with me my own props this time and my own pictures actually so I'd been going through the, new, the, uh, the papers of that week and I brought with me some newspaper photographs um, pertaining to the, the whole event of September 11th. So I brought my own props to try and make a scene out of a situation that was potentially uh, disastrous frankly for, in radio terms. So here is a two or three minutes of, the, uh, of, uh, of uh, just the conversation. I say these are middles. <laughs> just the conversation with um, Abdul, the son of the family. Track two. Jalalabad, Mazar-e-Sharif. There's Kundos, Shindan. Abdul pours over maps of the country he left as a five-year-old child, and we start going through some of this week's papers, looking at photos of the war. What does it say? Before and after photos show the apparent destruction of a training camp. The Pentagon was set. The camp was uh, largely empty, but was hit all anyway to deny to use its facilities for training terrorists. Mm. So what do you see so, when you see a picture like that? Before um, and after pictures. It's uh, happiness. Happiness. Happiness comes to mind, and I feel happy because it's it's a terrorist institution. It should be destroyed. This is another photograph from the uh, Globe and Mail this week. Afghans walk past a ruined site in Kabul. You know what that reminds me? That reminds me of Star Wars, where they go to race whatever they were doing, some desert and just broken buildings and there's, I don't think there's a single structure with all four walls and the, and the roof intact. Like some people ask, why don't people just get up and leave? A lot of people can't afford it. A lot of people can't. Like my mother still remembers leaving everything intact when they left Afghanistan. Some people just don't have the heart to do so. Like. Their life earnings are not much, but what they have is precious to them, and they just can't get up and leave. Look at this one here, Abdul. Look at this picture. Here. That's kids going down to a mm -hmm. bomb shelter in Kabul. How old are they? No, I don't think they're 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 older than like five or six. And I don't know how much protection they'll receive in those bomb shelters, since some of the cruise missiles 
go through three, four meters of cement. And I don't think these bomb shelters are made to withstand the bombs that we have nowadays, or the bombs that U.S. has. This little boy here, he seems to think it's fun. Yeah. Well, I, I thought it was fun when I left Afghanistan. I was eager to leave. I was driving the suitcase, so I guess that's what these kids are thinking. I was about the same age. So to them, it's, I don't know, probably hide-and-seek. This is New York. This is the National Post New York picture. A worker stands on top of a steel beam and looks down into the still smoldering crater at the site of the destroyed World Trade Center building. This is again Thursday's paper, so one month exactly, actually, after the attack. It's still mm -hmm. burning. If you, if you take the steel beams off and take the person out of the picture, it just looks like Afghanistan. And it was in a smaller version with all the debris in the, in the background and all the rubble. So... Hmm. Destruction is destruction is destruction. Exactly, exactly. The dust that you see in pictures of Kabul is the same dust that you see here, or the smoke. So that was what happened. That was a scene from the middle of a long piece. Um, again, I think your, the tone, I mean, looking at the pictures, uh, the two of us, just kicked him into a different gear. And, uh, you know, you'll have to take it on faith that when you hear his voice in the other parts of the piece, it's a different Abdul. It's a different person when, when you start using the props and drawing him into images. And he pulls up images from his own mind. Um, he pulls up images from his own mind, which uh, surprise me. Uh, his comparison of the of the rubble. So it turns out there's an ending there. Anyway, I better move on to Priya now. So enough of this. I'll see you in about ten minutes. <laughs> so I'm just going to pick up and given the gig that I'm in now, a lot of this, all of this, lives and dies on whether I can do this in a day. <laughs> Turning around a show, as I say, um, I need to know that there are tools at my disposal and at the disposal of all the producers or all the contributors, rather, um, to the program that they can apply and principles behind some of the work that I'm going to play for you now. I'm going to play a bunch of stuff. I'm going to play shorter increments of it so I can give you a taste of what um, a lot of my colleagues across the country have been trying on their morning program. So it's very focused on that kind of show. What, what I heard was a lot of what we did at Out Front being applied to daily news and current affairs, which is what really is exciting me these days, using some of those principles of experimenting with voice, who gets to tell a story, experimenting with perspective, who gets to be in charge, and who gets to hold the microphone, and who gets to basically rule the airwaves for a period of time. And normally on a news and current affairs show, it's your host. It's the person who's running the show. Everything is filtered through that one lens. So I'm really interested in some of the radio that's being made across the country that's kind of pushing at that. And certainly we're trying some of that on the show that I produced out of Toronto. So I'm going to um, play bits and pieces. Do you want to switch? Because I'm going to play around with this a bit, sure. I think. I'm going to change some of this stuff now. Just... It's not very graceful, I know. It's easier, I think, than you doing it. Um, in this first clip that I'm going to play for you guys, um, this is something that could have very easily been an interview in the studio with the host, with someone who does reviews. Everyone's got either film reviews, movie reviews um, that happen on the program. And in this particular case, um, this is a different way of presenting 
what would traditionally have been, uh, in this case, a reviewer who comes into the studio with prepared script to tell the host and tell the audience as a result, uh, give them a piece of information about a performance of some kind. What is interesting to me is that this picking right up from what Steve has just talked about became much more of a journey for the reviewer um, and much more of an active approach to doing this kind of review. This is correct. Steve. Hello, everyone. This is Kamyar Chai, and I'm in my car sitting outside the house of James Fagan Tate. Now, Jimmy is one of the directors of a series of Beckett plays called Beckett Shorts that are going to be on at the Fringe Festival this year. I'm ambushing him at his house. Rumor has it that last night he was up till three in the morning. You see, acts and Bart on the Beach plays, so afterwards they went out. So I am going to come in here and uh, interview him about his show that he's directing. Now, uh, I'm hoping he's going to make me breakfast, so uh, to that effect, I've brought my wife and my dog with me as well so that I can help my family. So, ready, guys? Ready. Okay. Here we go for our first edition of Entertainment This Morning. Now, Jimmy lives here with his two dogs, Willa and Lotta. Okay, I'm looking through the glass right now. I don't see him. He must be still asleep. Perfect. Oh, here comes the figure. Rise and shine. <laughs> Come on in. Hello, good morning. We didn't wake you, did we? Well, dear me, yes, yes. Oh. oh. Would you like coffee? Yes, I was hoping you'd make us breakfast. Right on. <laughs> I heard that you were okay. drinking buddies with Samuel. So this goes on, and, he's, and he, at, at, at that point, creates... Um, plays for us a whole interview that he has with the guy at his kitchen table. And just picking up from something that Steve said, what I thought was so cool about this was here's a guy who created a scene. In our mind's eye, we saw him getting out of his car, walking up the path, peering through the window. You know, I was continually caught up now. And I was a part of this journey that he was taking us on, which I find, which I thought was a very interesting way to do it and certainly pulled us away from what would normally be a very traditional state of approach to reviewing something in a fringe festival that we do all the time on morning and afternoon shows across the country. And bottom line, again, as uh, Steve has demonstrated to us, taking us out of the studio far more interesting uh, in a lot of ways. Um, this next one, and it, I sort of was thinking about it as I was listening to the morning edition this morning as well, is political stories and political process, especially gearing up for tomorrow. Often, it's the story, these are the stories you want to stay away from, right? What could be worse radio than doing stories about political process? Um, in this piece of tape that I'm going to pay, play for you, this is uh, a piece that comes from Halifax, Nova Scotia, and it's about citizen apathy, which is even worse, right? Uh, how can you possibly tell a story in an interesting way about getting people to be involved and take part? in a process. Um, I'll just note, in the interest of time, I've sort of edited and compressed this, so just uh, be aware of that. The Federal Electoral Boundaries Commission for Nova Scotia. Now that has quite a ring to it, doesn't it? The trouble is, not enough of a ring to ring in a crowd. In fact, only three people signed up for seven of the public hearings that were scheduled around the province this month. Those seven meetings have now been canceled. 
cancelled, much to the disappointment of Peter Stoffer. The MP for Sackville, Muscanabit Valley, Eastern Shore, was all geared up for the meeting in his riding. He did everything he could to encourage his constituents to attend. It didn't work. So, we asked him to take a slightly different approach. The top ten reasons why you should participate in a federal electoral boundary review. Number ten. If you don't, somebody else will. Number nine. You might not like what they come up with. Number eight. The Speaker in the House of Commons, after five years, is almost able to pronounce Muscadop. Number seven. Number three. What else would you be doing on a Sunday afternoon? Number two. There's a direct correlation between the bread box and the ballot box. And the number one reason why you should participate in a federal electoral boundary review democracy is not a spectator sport. I'm Peter Sauber, the Member of Parliament for Sackville, Muscadabra Valley, Eastern Shore. That was wonderful. Bravo. I loved it. That was great. Well, it was pretty good. Well, it wasn't bad. Well, there were parts of it that weren't very good. It could have been a lot better. I didn't really like it. It was pretty terrible. It was bad. It was awful. I'm terrible. Okay. I'm having a little skipping as you, but anyway, too fun putting the microphone into the hand of the principal, which is not something that we would normally consider, which would normally, uh, in, to get it done and to get it done fast, just give people the information, where to go, how to register, blah, blah. Um, in this case, the journalist then, that filter of the journalist is completely removed out of the process. And people now, the audience is relating directly to the politician, which um, I find is an, is an interesting format to try. So this clearly required the, par the participation of the politician, the writing of a script, which they managed to do in a couple of hours, and vetting of the script together, and performing to having it recorded with the guy, and then taking it back home and uh, cutting in sound effects uh, and turning it around for the morning show. So um, one way to do it. I wanted to play for you, and I'm, I'm sorry about this CD, I don't know why it's skipping like this, but I do want to play another um, example of treating uh, a political story. This, uh, at one point earlier this fall, this is uh, from another one of my colleagues on the East Coast in Canada, um, there's a politician named Bernard Lord uh, who was considering running for the leadership of one of our federal parties, the Progressive Conservatives. So in Fredericton, New Brunswick, um, which is his province, uh, a producer at the morning show decided to do what we always do on local current affairs shows, which is go and do streeters. Go out onto the street to see what local folk think about what this guy is up to. Bernie, you gotta let me know Will you stay or will you go? Please don't leave me in the dark Will you replace ye old Joe Clark? So come on and let me know 
Should he stay or should he go? I think he should uh, stay for at least another four years anyway, and uh, maybe by then he should uh, he should be ready to head out. A lot of federal tourists think he's ready now. Well, probably so, but in New Brunswick, he'd probably be a lot better for New Brunswick right now. Uh, he seems to be doing a good job. What's he doing for you? What's he doing for me? Well, we got uh, the tolls off the highway, I guess, and uh, our health care system's coming along, education's coming along. I think he's probably done pretty good in his last three or four years. We hear you talk, talk, talk. The door is closed, but... He's a pal to buy Mulroney. Mm. Yeah. All right. I'm just going to stop that. It's postmodern. <laughs> yeah, you could call it that, I guess. <laughs> so in this particular case, the, uh, the presenter becomes a character in the piece as well. Clearly, it requires a level of skill, and it requires uh, a talent. Um, but using music in that way uh, to present the piece is... Um, is one way of approaching a political issue. I was going to play one last little chunk. I'm going to just get rid of a couple because I'm worried about this CD. It's kind of bugging me. Um, so I'm going to do this fast. This is, uh, and then I'm going to give it back to you to pick up. But one potential way, one way of dealing with uh, what could be quite an annoying civic issue. And if they do walk off that job, what will we do with our garbage? It's the question of the day. We're supposed to find out if there's a strike again by noon today to pass some of the time while we wait. Our resident artist, Anne-Marie Woods, came up with this trashy little tune. Take it away, Anne-Marie. I want to take out my garbage. Tie it up in a can. But I heard there might be a strike. And I won't see the trash man. seems impossible that one could turn that around in one day. Not, not so. In fact, this is um, part of a move at CBC Radio, and it's a really, really good one, to look at who you have working on news and current affairs programs. Anne-Marie Woods, who is a performer, um, joined our staff for a period of time in order to be able to do this kind of work on a fast turnaround basis and respond to daily news and current affairs quickly. So she would come be a part of our story meeting. She would understand what the stories of the day are. Um, and what we're looking at sort of systemically in our units is to create much more of a multidisciplinary approach where it's not just journalists who are creating content for these kinds of shows. And this is one example of something that she turned around in an afternoon because it's about the pending garbage strike. So clearly it could 
they could walk at any point. So she was able to write that and perform it and put it to tape for air the next morning. So it's a bit of a structural change that we had to make, but certainly it supports a bunch of treatments that we never would have been able to consider um, or certainly would have taken a lot longer to produce and to create for the show. So uh, I'm going to pass over to Steve for a little bit, and I'm going to come back and offer you some examples of things if you have two days, um, <laughs> what you could actually do being the practical, very practically stay, based. Stay where you are. Please. I'm just going to stay. No, just pop my disc in, and, of, um, okay. and I'll ask you to play cut four in a minute. I will. Okay, I'm back on pictures. Um, obsessed with pictures. This time... Uh, it's to do with getting the pictures from the brain of the person you're speaking to when the event has already happened. Uh, this is so common for all of us, right? It's, it's, it just is. You should have been here yesterday. You should have been here. Why? You should have been here. Yesterday could be yesterday. It could be 10 years ago. Who cares? It's happened. It's gone. You can't create a scene. Well, you, you can do what you like, but um, you are now in the business, really, of um, trying to uh, mine a memory bank, maybe, for images of the past, something key, something that speaks to the story that has happened already. Um, this is this whole uh, endeavor of trying to get what I would call and, um, a, a picture flow. I mean, what I'm shooting for, uh, trying to shoot for most times, is, is to simply get a stream of images created by the words people speak, by the way they speak them, by the sounds that are around them, all those three types of pictures that come to the brain. Um, from, this, from the radio, the speaker of the radio, maybe, right here, right into the brain, lodge in your brain, memorable pictures, well-crafted etched pictures which are so clear and sharp, you feel as a listener that you, you were there. I mean, that to me is it. You know, if you can just take the listener on this trip, it's a head trip. Take the listener somewhere. Um, it's easy to say and not so easy to do, obviously, um, because uh, life doesn't always bend to what you want. However, um, there are ways and means of, of, of sneaking up on this and trying to get better results. And under any time pressures, frankly, uh, the interview I'll play you in a moment was actually, uh, the scene rather, was uh, the spoken part of it, was created in my office, um, office, well, you know, um, in, a, in a room, uh, a sterile sort of room. Um, it's, but the reason that it, it, it worked for us, I think, was that we... I uh, did something which I actually don't normally do in interviews. Um, let me just use this as a prop and Priya here. I mean, say this is my microphone, right? Um, it's, it's really not much help when you're doing this type of work to go like this. You know, and I know we're all supposed to maintain eye contact with the interviewee. It's supposed to you know, let them know there's a human being around here. Um, and after all, an interview is really a, a discussion or a conversation between two people, two human beings not just a transfer of information, you know, independent of human beings. But um, it's, so what I always think is, is, is give them space to get into. Give them, you know, don't insist on eye contact. Give them some space to look into. So I often do most of my interviews, you know, will just be kitty corner type stuff, side-by-side um, -side stuff, uh, you know, just, I mean, I mean imagine those walkabouts that I, that, that, that the first piece of tape. They're walking around, you know, their eyes aren't looking at me, they're, think that they're, they're going into their own space depending on what they see. Uh, so in this instance, you can take that to quite an extreme. Um, there's a wonderful uh, producer who uh, lives in Denmark, his name is Stephen Schwartz. Uh, he's actually from Detroit, but he spent 40 years in, uh, in Denmark. 
and he uh, is the leader and the pioneer of this technique, which is simply, simply an extreme version of getting, of getting people to allow them to go into some space. You want them to relive their story, right? You don't want them just to tell it. Relive it. That's the whole thing you're trying to get. So in this case, um, I'm trying to get a picture flow from, from a young guy. He's 28 years old. This is, was done five or six years ago. Um, he came to us with a story. Um, uh, it was about how, how Jewish am I, really? He'd fallen in love with a non-Jewish woman. He came from a, basically a very reformed Jewish household. And surprise, surprise, he'd met a, a woman who wasn't Jewish and he'd fallen in love with her. And he was thinking of asking her to marry him. And it had precipitated in him a crisis of, of identity. Who am I? Uh, how Jewish am I? So that was, uh, that was the basic whole track of the piece. Um, this scene comes from a simple question which Stephen Schwartz encouraged us to ask people. And it was simply, okay, as you confront this dilemma in your life right now, is there anything that comes to mind, anything that you think just comes to mind? It doesn't matter what it is. And uh, Miles Cronby, who is the guy in this clip, he offered a few things, and, but he kept coming back to an event, um, a journey he'd taken, a holiday actually, in Spain when he was in his late teens. Somehow or other there was a moment there which, which uh, was now in, in facing a dilemma of, of, that he was in was more meaningful to him. So we probed that. And I say we, because in this type of interview, it's not an ambush interview, it's not a quick hit, although it only takes an hour, <laughs> or maybe two, uh, if, you get, if you get lucky. Um, but he has a story to tell. We have agreed to capture a moment. And my next question is, okay, Miles, where do the pictures begin? And he says, well, you're here. He says, okay, here. So that's my first beginning. That, that's where my scene begins. Next question is, okay, Miles, where do the pictures end, the clear ones? Okay, they end here. Fine. There's the arc of the scene. Now my job is to get that scene. Um, in a sequence of pictures which come from his brain and, and where hopefully it sounds like he's actually reliving it. So we're going to go now to, um, uh, this is again the middle of a long documentary, but uh, you have the context. So it's a scene in the middle of a piece uh, and he's going to take us uh, on, a, on a trip um, from his memory bank. Hopefully it's cut four. Okay. <laughs> When I was 20 years old, I spent a few weeks backpacking through Europe, and I visited Barcelona. One of the things I, I most wanted to see was Gaudi's unfinished church, the Church of the Sacred Family. To get to the church, you have to leave the downtown a bit, and you go through a pretty normal-looking neighborhood, and then the, the church rises out of it like a monstrosity. Not completely unbeautiful, but a very strange looking thing. Uh, there's five or so large spires sticking up. The whole thing is the color of sand. And it even looks like it's been uh, built out of sand drippings, like a sandcastle. It had been under construction for about a hundred years. Generations and generations of people had contributed to the building of it. 
on the steps in one of the central spires. It was a hot day and it was shadowy and cool inside the, the spire. And there's portholes along the way and, and the main porthole maybe about ten stories in the air or so. And looking out you could see the adjacent spires of the church in their incredible detail and, and part of that detail were words embedded in tile Hosanna in excelsis so something like praise the Lord most high and looking at those words I had this feeling of vertigo not only because I was I was high up in the air but it was a feeling of of being in the midst of this structure that, it, that was the accumulation of so much faith this, this was a Catholic church, so it wasn't a monument to any, any faith that I knew well. But one of the monuments of Judaism are the texts. I mean, the, the writings are tremendously important. And, and the conversations about those writings. Now, in some ways, all this is hypocritical because I, 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 I've hardly read them. But I have the sense of... Jews for thousands of years studying from the same set of books commenting on those books commenting on the commentaries responding to the comments on the commentaries leading to this immense network of thinking that seems like an awful lot to dismiss So that's the scene. Um, obviously the intention is that you're trying to see what he sees and therefore enter into his experience and feel what he feels and learn what he's learning. Um, and, and I won't belabor it, but what he's actually learning, and if you think of the way he described the church, um, it had a granular structure. He's looking at the way the structure was built. He knows it's built by public subscription. He knows it's built one block of faith at a time. And uh, there's a sort of a parallel here with his own, um, his, his own um, uh, cathedral, which is an intellectual cathedral of Judaism. Uh, in other words, he is the block, obviously. If I marry out of the faith, I take a block away from uh, my own uh, body, of, uh, my own structure, my own cathedral. So there's all sorts of things happening, but that's why um, we're trying to get the camera, the radio camera, so to speak, on his shoulders, pointing it outwards, seeing what he sees when he describes the tower, we tilt up the tower. When he sees a, a porthole, uh, we, we, the, the camera zooms through the porthole. He sees a detail on this tower, uh, adjacent tower. He, he investigates that. We zoom further, and he uh, reads an inscription, which is a tight shot, um, Hosanna in Excelsis. He then ruminates on the meaning of that tight shot for him. What does it mean for him? So you can see the way it's working, the, 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 the picture sequence. Uh, the, the grammatical, the, the sort of visual grammar of it in a radio form. Um, there's a phrase or a sentence in here that you didn't hear, which you will get immediately, I, put, I would imagine, if you go for memory banks. You know, they say, well, okay, okay, Grandpa, tell me about the time when you bought your first tractor. Um, and he'll say, well, I remember uh, it was a Massey Ferguson 4,728 horsepower. Okay, okay, don't say I remember Please don't say, I remember. The, the sentence is, I remember, um, because uh, the thinking is it distances your experience. Um, I remember being at the Third Coast Festival. Okay? I, 
I was at the Third Coast Festival. Well, that's not a good example, maybe. I remember he had a gun in his hand. He had a gun in his hand. It's a different feeling for the listener. I think you'd agree. It's distancing the experience. So, you know, this little thing called I remember is not, uh, is intrinsically, it's not a bad sentence, but if you want to keep the camera pointing outwards and keep the listener in the space of the person giving the memory, it helps to get rid of it. won't go into that in huge detail now, but um, that's a strategy. Um, but the whole thing is to sort of see what he sees, see what she sees, and, and just take me, let them take you on that trip through pictures. Um, I'm going to segue to another approach, which has worked pretty well, although, you know, I haven't done it much lately, and I think I should. Juxtaposition, intercutting. Um, I was reading something Ira Glass wrote a while ago, and he was saying that one of his um, personal marching orders when he was out reporting was to try and make sure that even if the editors didn't ask for it, he would make sure that there was one tape-to-tape transition in his pieces. Just one. One tape-to-tape transition. Um, because I think we're all pretty familiar with the tyranny of the sort of script clip, script clip. You know, the rhythm is terrible, boring rhythm of slice and dice and you sort of cut all the life out of things. Tape to tape to tape. But if you think about juxtaposition, um, when you're going into stories, you know, what can I bounce off something else? Where are the, where, where's the, the left and right, the, the, you know, the, the dramatic he said, she said, or whatever? Um, you know, it's a dramatist's technique, obviously, of creating tension. So what are you looking for? I mean, you're looking for ways of putting one bit of tape against another bit of tape, um, or one idea against another idea, uh, you know, and even at the level of an old person talking with a very young voice, uh, the voice of love, maybe, you know, a 97-year-old person talking about the first time they ever l- fell in love. There's a sort of a juxtaposition there, even, between old and young, and, uh, and what you expect and what you get. Um, if you're on a slightly more journalistic investigative hunt, and this, I'm going to lead up to this clip now, uh, a very simple way of, 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 of approaching it. It's pretty common. There's an event in your story which happened after you got there, right? You have to recreate the event. The one I just played is mining one person's memory bank. Now I'm going to go to the two people and I'm going to let them play off each other because I wasn't there. What is the truth? What is the truth here? What happened? What happened in, in this case? What happened that night on the moor in southwest England in 1978? when a gunman was sent out by a political, allegedly by a political leader in Britain to kill his alleged, I have to say alleged because the court exonerated the politician, his alleged homosexual lover. This is the story of um, British politician uh, Jeremy Thorpe, who uh, was the leader of a, of a major political party in the UK in the 70s. It's, uh, he was charged with conspiracy to murder. Um, to murder his alleged homosexual lover. The two uh, men who were at the center of the key event, the, the, uh, the guy who went out to kill, allegedly, and the guy who was the target. I did these interviews separately, <laughs> obviously, after the event. Uh, and then options for me would have been, okay, you can run them back to back, you can slice and dice them, you can do whatever you want with them. I had the idea that maybe it would be just a simple and easy job, actually, to intercut them. Just let them go. He said, she said. He said, he said. So here I'll give you uh, um, a clip from that documentary. There's another participant in this, as you'll hear. It's a dog. Uh, the dog, unfortunately, is the only um, creature that uh, got killed in this whole incident. So, but you'll hear about that. And um, here it is. Uh, it begins with a mentioning of a of place in England where the event actually happened. So it's, it's five? cut five. Yeah. 
We drove up Porlock Hill, it's a, a very d dark night, and um, I pulled the car up, uh, faking to be tired. Norman Scott offered to drive, and as he got out of the car, I um, pulled the gun out. Uh, I shot the dog. Uh, say his, um, I do like dogs, you know, and I received a sort of a number of letters from people who, uh, who are dog lovers. But I had to get rid of the dog because it was such an enormous beast that, um, and it was told by Norman Scott that he'd only have to click his fingers and it ripped my throat out. I didn't hear any bang. Didn't hear the shot. I've never ever heard the bang, which is a very strange thing because there was no silencer on the gun. Because uh, well, I, I now know there wasn't because the silencer is a very long thing. Anyway, uh, the dog sort of sank down in front of me, and uh, 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 I look, I sort of looked down. Then I went down, you know, to, to try and um, well, just shake her. I just I couldn't believe it, and. Um, uh, I said, oh, you can't involve the dog, you know, why have you done this? And he said, oh, it's, now it's your turn. What uh, really uh, frustrated this attempt was when I, in fact, did pull the gun on Scott, he froze like a custard. And uh, instead of running away, just stood there. And what I, in fact, did was levelled the gun at him and said, right, it's your turn, and pretended the gun had jammed. And um, he said, uh, uh, oh, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. I heard him really shouting it out, oh, fuck it, like an animal, sort of screaming, oh, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. He's obviously really worried. I mean, well, he'd blown the job. Well, he, I mean, his amount, he'd been paid, was to be paid 10,000 quid, although he only got, well, never mind. Anyway, um, he shook, he shook the and then um, he leveled it at me absolutely like that, once more, you know, held it right up and leveled it at me. And like an animal, he sort of cried out, oh, fuck it, and, 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 and got back into the car, and he screamed, I'll get you. You mean to say you went all to those lengths and with no intention of killing him on the moor? Well, look, Sunshine, when you've, uh, you know, got people sort of trying to uh, kill somebody, you're not dealing with sort of uh, fairyland figures. I was trying to give Rinka the kiss of life, those stupid sounds, but, you know, trying to breathe into her. And um, then this car came along. I ran out and tried to stop them and, and uh, wave them down. And, uh, of course, I was covered in blood because I'd had my head, you know, trying to, to make her breathe. So I was all covered. They thought I'd been shot. I said, my dog's been shot, but it was so garbled. They thought I'd been shot. And uh, then, I mean, in all my nerves and worry, I said, it's all because of Jeremy Thorpe. You see, I, even then, in all my shock, they, I realized it. Yeah. And you wonder where Monty Python came from, right? <laughs> So it's a sad story, but it's, uh, it's sort of funny in a way, too. Uh, just a simple intercutting job, totally easy, done, uh, no must, no fuss, um, and that was the approach. Actually, I don't do it enough these days, I realize, so uh, I'm going to smarten up. <laughs> um, a lot of the techniques that I've been uh, presenting to you, again, do much of what we did at Outfront, which is give up control. Give up control about who gets to tell the story and who gets to um, give us what we're going to hear. Uh, and in some cases, um, playing with control about uh, what gets to tell you the story. Uh, I'm interested in uh, a piece that uh, my colleagues in Montreal did this past month. Um, this is something that looked at the social and economic realities of a certain neighborhood in the city. In fact, the producer is here with us. You'll probably want to jump in and um, 
add to this. The people in this neighborhood are poor, uh, and they can't afford telephones. Um, and m some of them can't afford telephones. So in this particular case, and we can talk a bit about it after, here is um, how the producer and the freelancer who helped to tell this piece, tell this story, chose to present it to the audience. It's an example of um, creating a character and looking for characters in things that one normally wouldn't look for them. In this case, an inanimate object of the payphone at the corner uh, by the small grocery store in this particular neighborhood. Normally, we would send a reporter out to do a tape piece where the reporter is sort of our guide to telling the story of the different characters in this neighborhood. And we end up meeting a whole range of people who live in this one particular apartment block. Um, I think the process here it was quite a collaborative one between the producer and the freelancer, and it happened over the course of a couple of days. So looking at how to present an issue, and in this case a, a social reality in the city in which it lives, looking at how to present it in a bit of a new way, and personalizing or humanizing the inanimate was uh, a technique that one can use in a number of different situations. So I think that was kind of kind of cool. We're going to move. We're going to do questions pretty soon. Um, I did want to play one. I'm going to actually cut forward. And I want to play a piece for you guys that um, a long-running story. This happens a lot when you're in your city and there's a story that um, it goes on for days and days and days. And you have to each day figure out a new way of getting at it because it's a reality and that's your job uh, as a current affairs show or as a news-driven show to be able to reflect that. And so uh, one of uh, my colleagues on the East Coast in St. John's, Newfoundland, um, decided to take a look at something that they had been undergoing. They were under siege in their city, which was a snowstorm. And it was going on, and the weather is huge, big in that city. So what I've done is this is sort of a telescopic look at the way they covered this story of just heaps and heaps and heaps of snow that have been piling on the city for days, and they talked about it from a news perspective, they talked about it from the political perspective, so now they were sort of at their wits' end as to what else to do with it, and this is the direction they went. We think we're probably heading for a record-breaking winter. That snow just keeps coming, it's piling higher and higher, 
We've been talking a lot about how hard it is to get around. The streets and the highways are blocked, the sidewalks are covered, and everybody's back is breaking trying to shovel snow. We think, though, that there is a record at stake here. So, people, we've decided we're going for it. It is the morning show, Buried Alive campaign, and to launch the Buried Alive campaign this morning, I am joined by the campaign's honorary chairman, (laughs) Thor, the Norse god of thunder. (laughs) Thor, good morning to you. Good morning, Budgel's daughter. You're a god, a god. But tell us, what is with the snow? Budgel's daughter, three little ice ages will fall upon the world, known as Phil Bavetter. And many other signs will come to pass. Then the time will arrive and the cocks will crow. It sounds like now, Thor, I understand that you actually have a, a musical anthem, a little song about all of this. Oh, yes! <laughs> Would you honor us, please, with a rendition? Yes, I am! The King of Snow! Blower for sale or truck Ah! Pass to clear 50 bucks No drive, no way, no Thank you, Thor. Well, we want you to take part in our Buried Alive campaign. We are going for the record, people. There's songsters out there who would like to call up and sing their version of King of the Snow. Five, seven, six, five, two, five. That's our winner, Brian Din, and let's hear his award-winning entry right now. Good morning, Jim. Going to have a stab at that snow song. There it goes. No blowers for sale or rent. No shovels left down at Kent. Can't find a hydrant for the dog to pee. He has to lift his leg on me. I spent two hours of moving snow. Something in my back let go. No equipment, what a fuss. Why don't they put a plow on the bus? I know every operator on every plow. I wanted to pay them all back somehow For pushing all that snow in here I threw an empty bottle of beer I say, I'm gonna leave, i leave this town Sick of trying to get around I'm a man who's really, really sick of the snow Four minutes to eight o'clock there So again creating a character to get across something that everybody has to talk about but nobody wants to talk about anymore, and then getting the audience involved in a really interesting way. I just want to make one really fast, just a fast point, and then I'll throw it back to you, is just that on shows like this, it's not easy to present this kind of material. It was very easy for us on Out Front because that, as, as you heard Joanna say, was the mandate and is the mandate of the show. Uh, in this, in, in cases like this where you have a host who's got to sort of be your shepherd and your guide, I was going to play just a tiny little chunk for you guys, just something that we're constantly battling and dealing with. We want to try new and interesting things. And it's not just the host. It's sort of all the stuff that's around it, right? You have to do the weather and you have to do the traffic and you have to do all these, you have to do news. Um, the framework in which a lot of this work appears, I'm just going to play a quick 30 seconds just to illustrate a point that it's something that you have to think about. Um, when you're creating soundscape, for example, playing soundscapes on a daily show. Um, it's a great way to do commentary. It's a great way to editorialize. Um, and it's a great way to just experiment with sound and form. Um, but as you'll hear from this, this is uh, something that we, we realize we have to think about how in which we present this kind of material. 
To celebrate a new season of our own here at Metro Morning, we are bringing you new beginnings. New. Ongoing. Beginning. Evolution. A little word association as we commence our series. On beginning is a form of evolution. Last spring, Jennifer McLean's husband died. For many people, the death of a spouse marks both an ending and a beginning. The end of being a couple, the beginning of being single. Death, not an ending. Goal, happiness. Understand? Far too much. Color? Golden sparkly? The CBC's Mary Weens introduced... So what we wanted to do was use word association, use it to get across the larger themes of this series that we were presenting over the course of a week. And because we had to negotiate around a third character that we didn't expect in the creation of the content, you want to just be able to play it and sort of rejoice in the creative treatment of it. But we had to, what we forgot was our guy, right? Our guy who had to give us all the, the relevant information. So it's, it's well worth keeping in mind if you've got other characters who have to play a role, it's the framework in which this stuff appears that oftentimes we lose track of when we're all caught up in the process of creating. And that was one where it felt to me he was a bit intrusive. And in fact, that he had to identify for us that it was word association was a very sort of predictable way I must give you the information that you need to know to appreciate this creative format. So it's just something to think about when you go to create this kind of stuff. One last thing before we go for, for me anyway. Can you queue up not cut six on that? Yes, I will. Uh, there was, when we were listening to the Seltzer salesman earlier on today, um, there was sort of a question raised, well, you know, that bit where Joe was asking him to um, describe the truck, describe, describe, and he wasn't playing ball. It was really illuminating, I think, about the character of this guy. Anyway, um, uh, there was some in the room maybe wondered whether it might be nice to include that because uh, it was sort of a mistake. And, and the point, my point is, is not to, shy, to, to, uh, to, to let mistakes happen if you can. Uh, don't always sort of edit them out. Um, uh, even a non-interview, I'm going to play something because it's, it's re revealing, but it's also funny. Um, a non-interview but has so much information in it. Like, what is information in radio discourse? Um, we get so pushed into thinking that it has to be content, content, content. Well, I put it to you, you know, people of the jury, that here is a non-interview, it runs a minute, full of content. Um, it takes you back, this is an ancient example, 40 years ago, some poor BBC guy is sent off to interview um, a, a, tyra, a, a sort of fiery old African leader called Hastings Banda. So uh, the guy has come to London, England, to discuss independence issues, and this, this interview was recorded in early 1960s, I think. Anyway, here comes a minute or so of, of uh, no information, but in my mind, a lot of information. You said six, right? Cut six, yeah. Dr. Banda, what is the purpose of your visit? Well, I've been asked by the Secretary of State to come here. Have you come here to ask the Secretary of State a firm date for the Yasmin's independence? I won't tell you that. When do you hope to get independence? I won't tell you that. Dr. Bender, when you get independence, are you as determined as ever to break away from the Central African Federation? Need you ask me that question at this stage? Well, this stage is as good as any other stage. Why do you ask me why I shouldn't ask you this question at this stage? Haven't I said that enough for any, everybody to be convinced that I mean just that? Dr. Bandler, if you break with the Central African Federation, how will you make out economically? After all, don't your country me. isn't really a rich country. Don't, don't ask me that. Leave that to me. Well, which way is your mind working? Which way? I won't tell you that. 
Where do you hope to get economic aid from? I won't tell you that. In fact, you're going to tell me nothing at all? Nothing at all. So it's a singularly fruitless interview. Well, it's up to you. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's good. Okay. I'm done. <laughs> Words spent. That's it. You done? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. That last piece of tape could have been out of Monty Python. <laughs> Probably was. Uh, my name is Larry Josephson. I've been in public radio for about 100 years. I've been an independent producer for about half of that and started out at Pacifica. I was struck by how personal much of the tape was, particularly Priya's examples of someone being themselves and basically telling you what was going on, what they felt, and even, God forbid, what their opinion was. This conference is about storytelling, and most of the tape we hear, I was here last year, has been produced over weeks, months, years, and it's highly edited and highly artificed, and people like Ira Glass, Jay Ellison, David Isay, Sandy Tolan, and Joe Richmond do this very well. But there's another older modality of radio, which is live radio, which is what I've done most of my life. Working without a net before a live microphone, no script, just a few props. And it, it, when done well, it can be very moving and affecting. There are really two kinds of it that are practiced now. One is talk radio, where there's a host who interviews people and keeps the thing going and generally doesn't express an opinion directly except maybe through writing or delivery. There's another kind of radio, and Gretchen Helfridge here in Chicago and Catherine Lamfort, Minnesota, and David Roncaccio and Kai Rizdahl at Marketplace do this well. They somehow let you know how they feel about the material. But there's another kind of live radio that's almost dead now, and these are live storytellers, essayists, humorists. Gene Shepard is an example, Harry Shearer at KCRW, and at WBAI, once upon a time, Bob Fast, Steve Post, and me. And many funders, gatekeepers, editors feel that this kind of radio is too personal, too raw, too unfiltered. I've been told that many times about my work, that I'm too personal. Uh, embarrassing. However, in commercial radio, the most successful practitioners are Rush Limbaugh, Howard Stern, and Don Imus. So, and it takes, besides the talent to do that, I'll be mm. done in a second. Besides the talent, it takes <laughs> enlightened, I don't have a question. Uh, it takes enlightened <laughs> management okay. that protects this kind of talent from criticism and makes, gives them a kind of space to uh, work. Jim Russell, J.J. Orr and Tori Malatia are examples. So I just want to point out to particularly the young people here that there are other kinds of radio than highly produced, highly artificed radio. Some of it, if you're lucky to get a live microphone and you have the talent to do it, it's the mm -hmm. greatest high in the world. I can, um, I can add a, a comment to that. Some of the other things we're trying on our show have to do with exactly that, which is capitalizing on the live nature of the morning show and allowing different kinds of people to come in and literally take over swaths of the program. So our host will just sort of move aside and give it over to people who have developed almost shows within the show, who do live sort of performance spoken word, um, whether that's either politically driven or have a, has a commentary bent to it. So it's another way, as you say, of, of really working with a medium that isn't about editing and shaping. 
uh, again, in the interest of time. But the time that we've spent in figuring out a new way to tell what normally would have been a news-driven item is, I think, what, what, what has been the most useful to us. Sorry, go ahead. For me, li live or not, the, the, the approach is the same for me. It's, it's where are the – can I bring this person to life on the radio? I'm sure you've confronted that again and again and again. Where, where are the moments? Where are the, where, are the, where are the pictures, the images that will really lodge in my brain from that from – that, whether it's live or taped, who cares? You're on the, I'm on the hunt for scenes and, and images the same way, and I've done live too. It's very, it's very interesting. Go ahead. Um, I have two short questions. One, I was wondering if you could speak to the decision in pieces like the interview with the Rhodesian farmers to sort of exclude scripted narration and just go with your live – questions on the tape and in that way sort of putting me in like making the piece about the scene and in the same way sort of um, with pieces like uh, the person who showed up at the at the playwright's house pieces that sort of become about the scene about the event about the person doing the interview as much as they are about the person who's the subject mm -hmm. of the interview uh, just quickly on the Rhodesian one uh, for me there's no um either or between script and non-script in terms of trying to capture the scene. I will try and capture the scene any way legal. Um, I just chose to let it roll as an interview. Um, if I had had the wit or the ability to write or whatever or the voice to make that scene work better with script interjections, I may have done it, but I, I chose not to. But to me it's not an either or. The script doesn't take you into a good lord. Script can take you anywhere. It's all pictures to me, no matter how they come to you, you know. Um, with regard to the reviewer, uh, this again was uh, a choice to allow him to dictate the way in which he was going to present his story. And for me, that's the main lesson out of that, is letting this person figure out and tell us what's the best way to do it. So for him, creating that scene was the best way for him to actually bring us somewhere and take us to a new locale that takes us out of the studio. and. His mediation is the filter that we chose, right, that was chosen by that particular program, as opposed to what we would normally do either with a reporter or the host of the program. So I think it's the question of filter, and then that determines whether it's scripted or not. Can I just draw your attention to one little bit of what I would call surrogate narration? Do you remember the, the uh, scene with the, the guy in the uh, pictures of Afghanistan? We're reading um, the captions of the photographs. It saves me. That's not a script, right? But it has the same purpose. It delivers the same information in the context of a scene. So, just a thought. Thank you. Hi. I've been years. I think that's also the case. Is my mic on? There, now there we it's go. On. All right. Um, I'm, I'm speaking for those of us who have perhaps been shorter time in radio. And my experience in public radio is 100% subaltern of a subaltern. So my problem is not that there's not enough time to be creative. It's that the mandate from above me is please fit this format, which, which is, you know, in Washington today, blah, 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 blah. So can you speak maybe from personal experience or just from, from any other aspect to how those of us in the subaltern shoes can interject what we want to interject, a little life into news? I think um, certainly we're lucky, there's no question, and I talked a bit about this last year. Uh, the fact that a program like Outfront exists means we're lucky, first of all, at CBC Radio. This year, the fact that we have been given license on all our news and information programs to experiment with form and content means we're even more lucky. <laughs> 
So to my mind, it is a negotiation. Having said that, as someone who also makes decisions within the parameters of what is news content, and there are responsibilities around that, there is a balancing act that one has to play. And, and I've been in this, I've been put into this position again where in the interest of creative creativity and doing something funky, we, we could get sued. And we almost did, you know, within one. So I can also see the flip side, you know, where I let a, I, I let a spoken word artist just do her own thing about, I think it was about pesticide use. And there was something going on at City Hall about pesticide use and banning pesticide use and regulating pesticide use, rather. And so she went on this tirade about companies that do it. It was a really great treatment. She had a guitarist and everything, but hello, you know, not so good, eh, for the, you know, for the journalistic mandate of the program. So I can sort of see both sides. My suggestion would be to actually attempt a bit of a change, a switch in the approach before you even go out. To my mind, the kind of tape that you gather, the kind of perspective that you look for, making decisions around, as, as I've said a couple of times here, who gets to be the speaker in your story, right? Those are things that you have entire, you have control over that don't necessarily have to do with whether you put music in your piece or not. So there's a range of techniques around uh, approach before you even leave your desk, before you even leave the building, that I think can give you a whole bunch of freedom as to what comes out at the end of the day so that it's not in Washington, blah, 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 or as I said earlier, so-and-so says, right? So-and-so might have to actually do some work to be a part of your story the next time around, like the politician piece. You know, which again was done. It's not an issue of time, as you say, but that was an approach that was chosen as opposed to the reporter doing it. So I think those kinds of things, uh, that's what I would suggest. There's certain things that are within your control. It, it, it does depend on how, how dictatorial your bosses are. I mean, you, you, if you get fired or like, for doing a piece that was actually much better than anybody ever expected because you took the marching orders and turned them to something much more interesting, much more creative, then I think you should bail out of that radio station. <laughs> Um, okay. Because they're morons. Um, so uh, the, the challenge is you. The challenge is back to you to take, I mean, look at Ira Glass. Okay, he says, nobody, nobody, nobody told me to do a tape to tape transition. In fact, nobody asked me to do anything really creative. I did it myself. I set my own challenges. I set my own standards. I mean, I mean he, he, he says this all the time. Do the same. Go for it. You, go for it. Leave them behind, these small-minded people. <laughs> This is, I suppose, in a way, a follow-up to that question. Um, and it seems to me, in, in, keeping, in keeping with the, um, the themes of today of beginnings, ends, and scenes, what you've given us is a series of uh, wonderful ends, that is to say, results. Um, but the scene at the beginning, for a lot of us who've been in daily news, um, is is a meeting, and there's a list of items on a board, and they say, President speaks today about terrorism, uh, productivity figures, uh, etc. And what I'm wondering is if you could talk a little bit about how you get from that meeting each day to the result. Do you just... Do you just... Um, depend on the reporter? Do you sit around and come up with approaches that you suggest? Do you give one editor some time to work with the reporter, knowing that you have four to six hours? Uh, Do you want to go? I'll go uh, after you. It's just everything we've been saying. It's in your, it, it's take, take the, the mangled marching order, take the, 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 the story meeting that everybody's bored about, and, you, and just, you just have to find, out of your own imagination, a treatment quickly that will elevate your stuff to something else. I mean, it's, I know that sounds like 
not very helpful maybe, but it really comes down to that. Anyway. I'm sorry? Well, your, your brain and the reporter, whoever is creating the story, whoever is receiving the marching orders, whoever has to take story number six and make it work. Is it, if it's the two of you, then you've got to do it together, I guess, I presume. I think also, just to be realistic, there's a whole menu of stories that one has to do on a daily basis that you're not going to be able to do everything with every single story. So there are choices that you make at the beginning of the day. The, one, the stories that I think lend themselves, the that immediately have characters that are visible. There are scenes that one can create when you're in the car with the news release and you're on your way to the newser. Some sense of how best you're going to get a certain kind of tape that puts you above the fold beyond the rest of the other people who are also running after whoever with a microphone. So it's those kinds of choices, and I think that's all we really hope to suggest today, is that that does actually rest with, within the sort of the belly of the, the reporter or the producer who's making key choices before they even pick up the phone or before they even leave the office. Um, and then once that tape gathering happens, if it's tape-related, if it's a phone issue, right? The, the creation of a, uh, what we call greens and writing scripts for interviews of people who are going to show up in studio. That's another whole exercise. But again, I think it begins and ends with the producer or the reporter. I think you don't have a choice in that matter. Clearly, you want to get support, but also choices from, if you look at, you're not going to do everything with every single story. The, the, the garbage strike blues piece, that would have been the one element that appeared within, in an hour, right? That sort of, uh, as, as our host calls it, those are the raisins in the oatmeal. Those are, that's the good stuff that you're always looking for, even though you have to eat the oatmeal. You want that ch chewy raisin, and that's, that's sort of what we try to aspire to, because you also have to be real, right? So... Um, I'm currently trying to work on a story about an interesting character. Um, it's an old lady in my mom's quilting bee who has been hired by the government to use a sultry, sexy voice to spy over the phone and get information out of people. So she's obviously much better at um, controlling the conversation than I am. And so when I went to interview her, I was not able to get any images or stories out of her. I'm new at this. Um, so my question is about props, like what kind of props can I bring to this where the story is all about what she says, how she says it, and getting information out of people, and information that I'm not allowed to know about. Yikes. That's a tough one. Um, trying to assimilate the details of that story. <laughs> There's a lot of details. <laughs> I'm still stuck on the sexy voice and the quilt <laughs> together. Uh, my brain works slowly. Uh, I don't have a clear answer for that yet. I'd have to, I'd really just, maybe we should, we can talk later, but how to punch through, what are you trying to punch through? What is the resistance? What, what is your target and what's stopping you getting there in terms of the story? Well, I mean, just as a student of interview, you know, I'm, I myself am trying to discover how is it that you talk to people and get them comfortable to give you that information. Okay. So my interest in talking to her was finding out, well, how do you do it? And, you know, what techniques are you, are you using? Uh, try everything I've said today, and, which, and maybe something will work, you know. Mm -hmm. you, you, but then to get the story out of her, like the props, you were talking about props before, yeah. Uh -huh. so. Yeah, yeah. Well, what props are available to you in, in the widest sense of the word, not necessarily physical ones? Well, I guess it would be the telephone, like having her okay. talk on the phone. Doing things. I mean, doing usually, usually what breaks the logjam is getting people to do something that's mm -hmm. relevant to the story, right? 
usually. I mean, and then see what you can start with that nugget of action and just see if you can get in there somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. Right now I can't think of anything more to say on that, but there's a proper conversation to have about this piece. <laughs> I think you better have lunch at the same table. I do that all the time with this man. We'll take one more. I'm just told that we've got to wrap up in like five minutes. So we'll take, so we'll catch up afterwards. We can catch up afterwards with you. We'll take one last question. Um, so if you have to deal with this sort of public policy story and you have these bureaucrats in there and you want to move beyond the talking heads, um, how do you, how do you one, draw out bureaucrats? Um, and, and, and two, how, how do you draw these people out? And, and they're not necessarily doing action and, and should a public policy story be more than that sort of proverbial first scene with some affected person that you spend, you know, 45 seconds with and then you move on and you just sort of have a talking head story after that. And that seems to be a struggle that I have often with these public policy stories. So how do you? Well, um, this, get them out of their chair, first of all. I mean, this is, I know this may sound strange. You, you pro these are men in suits, probably a lot of them, right? Sure. In power positions in offices. Yeah, okay, they want to do the interview in the position that they're comfortable with. First thing, you've got to break that power relationship. Um, you know, you may do a courtesy interview first, but uh, when the moment is right, get them out there and then look for the props immediately in that office. I mean, get them out, walk around. This is what I would do immediately in your dilemma. Look around, go into his, in this office, like to him, I'm sure, um, and, and look at the props. What can I talk about in this place? Is there a photograph? Is there a, a trophy? Is there anything in this room which I can get this conversation going, which will break this, this message track, this power relationship, and, and, and deliver some kind of human being who will reveal you know, more about what their thoughts on the issue. The issue then will be, you can then talk about the issue in relation to a specific object, perhaps, uh, with luck, um, even if it's a book or a report or, or a golf ball, you know, whatever. Um, but just break the conventional relationships that you find in the room. That's my first mm. piece of advice. It seems that if we go back to sort of earlier and what we were saying, it depends on the story that you're trying to tell. And, and what I find is that we don't spend enough time, especially with stories like this, figuring that out and making that call and then standing behind it if it happens to be the wrong one, right? If there's certain information that, or if it's, as I say, if it's a news release or an announcement, right, those are usually the ones where... They have one thing to say, and it's the one note, and that's it, right? So is that the story we're choosing to tell, either that day or the next day, or is there something else? And I find it's that first step that gets forgotten. And then you try to figure out, well, how do I do something creative with an announcement about funding, right? And I, I would argue that, that we're already too late. We're already too late along it. So if there's something that turns this particular person into a character, that's the question. And I don't know that we know that yet. I don't think we've actually even thought about that. And that's what I would hope. That's what I think we struggle with and we don't spend enough time thinking about. Because you just rush to the newser, right, to get it done. So that would but be my But if the announcement thought. about funding, let's just speculate, was very similar to the previous announcement about funding, which was reneged on, which was similar to the previous announcement about funding, which was also partially reneged on, you have the opportunity to, to take those three announcements and roll them and one, set them one against the other and show something, show that, uh, that words are spoken but actions don't happen. Right. You know what I mean? There's ways of showing a story like that rather than just telling sort it. Sort of putting a little context to the story of okay. beginning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Good? Yes? We're done. No, we're good. That's, That's good. good. We're done. There's nothing else to say.